We are going to be looking this morning at verses 14 to 24. So we're going to pick it up there in chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Did you hear the word of the Lord? The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for or contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, as I thought about this text this week, one of the things that came to mind is one of the quirky things, at least I think is quirky about me, is that I have a strange and deep love for severe weather. Now, I'm equal opportunity, like it doesn't matter, snowstorms, whatever, lightning, tornadoes. Now, hear me, I don't want anyone to get hurt, and I don't want property to get damaged, but I just love storms. The bigger, the better. I think in particular thunderstorms. There's just, there's something about being able to look out and watch these ominous black clouds roll in and just wondering, what are those clouds going to do? What do they hold? How bad will it be? What kind of power will we see unleashed from those clouds? But one of my favorite parts about the really bad storms, and it's got to be the really bad ones, are those moments when the sky is filled with the massive black clouds, so that the afternoon is as dark as night, and you're like, oh, this is kind of freaky, and this is all going on. But there's all of a sudden these little patches where light bursts through, and, and the sun catches these little openings, and you get these little glimpses through the clouds of this bright blue sky. And it's so jarring because it's dark and sometimes weird colors, greens and purples. But up there, through these little slivers, you see the sun and you see bright blue sky. And 
the way those slivers of sunshine peek through the black clouds always remind us that behind and above the darkness, there's a light shining. The darkness of the storm is not all there is, though it feels like it. When it's, when it's howling and it's beating down, you're like, oh, this is it. This is the end. But no matter how bad the storm, it will pass and the light will fill the sky again. And those little rays of sunshine peeking through are glimpses of hope amidst the clouds of darkness. You're like, That's really fascinating, Pastor. When are we going to get to Genesis? Here's the connection. Because our passage this morning paints a similar picture. After Adam and Eve sinned by eating of the fruit that God told them not to eat, dark clouds of judgment roll in. Where they once enjoyed the bright skies of the garden paradise that God had created for them, surrounded by nothing but beauty and provision, living in perfect fellowship with God and with each other, now with sin comes a wall of black clouds covering everything. These clouds of judgment hold unimaginable devastation and loss for mankind and all creation and we're going to look at the judgment that God rains down from these clouds but even in the midst of this horrible storm we get glimpses of hope peeking through the clouds of judgment so here's how we're going to look at our passage this morning now hear me up front cool thing about this passage I think is that you're going to see hope and judgment sprinkled throughout so even though there's going to be parts we're going to focus on judgment you'll see hope and the parts we're going to focus on hope you'll see judgment but here's how we want to look at it first we're going to look at three storm clouds of judgment on the serpent on the woman and on the man then we're going to see two glimpses of hope and we're going to end with one supercell cloud okay now in our passage this morning we are joining a program already in progress. So we have not started at the beginning. We're just plopping down like this scene is already active. So let's remember what's going on here. Last week, we saw how the ter- ser- serpent tempted, tempted Eve to eat this fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the woman then gave some to her husband who after passively sitting by and letting evil slither in and wreak havoc, joined her in eating the forbidden fruit. After their sin, both the man and the woman's eyes were opened to see their guilt and shame. And they responded to their sin by, by trying to fix things. They said, well, we see the problem. What can we do? So they sewed fig leaves together to cover their shame. And we saw that they hid. And they blamed their sin on those around them. Okay, so that's what's just happened. That's, that's where we're picking it up today. So after we saw last week how man and woman responded to sin... Today we're going to see how God responds to their sin. So let's look at our first thundercloud of judgment. Let's see what God says to the serpent. Look at verse 14 again with me. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, up front, it's important to note that sometimes when we talk about this scene, we talk about Adam and Eve being cursed after the fall. But if you look carefully, that's not actually quite right. 
If you look at the text, the only things cursed here are the serpent and the ground. Now, Adam and Eve themselves are never cursed. Why does that matter? Because it reminds us, even through this, that God's blessing is still on them. But, from now on, they will live in a world that's suffering the effects of the curse. They will experience the curse, but not be cursed. Now, when we met the serpent back in chapter 3, verse 1, it said he was more crafty than any other beast of the field. Now in 3.14, with very similar wording in the original, it says that he's more cursed than any beast of the field. So the most crafty has become the most cursed. And well, what is his curse? What is the serpent's curse? There's a few parts to it here. First, he is cursed to humiliation and dishonor. All throughout the Bible, the picture of someone bowing down low to the ground, having their face in the dust, is a sign of being conquered or humbled. When Psalm 72 wants to talk about the king's success, it says, May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. That's the picture. Where Isaiah talks about God's people this way, he says, Kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers. With their faces to the ground, they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. What are those passages saying? They're saying, you will stand and triumph over them. Your enemies will be down low. They will be subjugated. They will be conquered. So the point here is that the serpent and the one he represents will from now on be viewed with contempt. They will be lowly and humiliated. Now, just to throw this in there, some people... You read a lot of interesting stuff in commentaries in various places. Some people want to argue that, okay, well, if that means the serpent's going to crawl in his belly, that before this, snakes walked on legs. Well, the answer we find, if you look really closely at the words, is that they don't say. It's not in your Bibles. And therefore, guess what? It's not a relevant detail. So rather than spending hours ruminating on, did they have legs? If they had legs, do you think it was two or do you think it was four? Maybe they're more like a spider and they had eight. I don't know. What God wants us to know here is not whether it had legs, but that the serpent will be cursed by being lowly and eating the dust. And even again there, eating the dust, that doesn't mean that will be the snake's diet. Even today, we have a, a colloquial phrase. We talk about Someone, oh, another one bit the dust. We don't mean they went down and, right? What do we mean? They're defeated. They've been conquered. They've been put down and brought low. That's what's happening to the serpent here. Now, the second part of the serpent's curse, he talks about an ongoing war between the serpent and the woman and between her offspring and his and this war is the battle throughout the ages between good and evil. And it encompasses all humanity. We are either part of the seed of the woman or the seed of the serpent. And God says here that eventually one particular seed, one particular offspring or descendant will crush the head of the serpent. Even though the serpent will cause him great pain. Where it says bruise his heel, that the words are actually the same. I know we, we, we're used to saying crush the head and strike the heel or bite the heel. Same word, but what's different is where they, where they land. 
It's okay to be, get a nip on the heel. It's not okay to have your head stepped on. So we're meant to see one is mortal, one is not. So now the rest of the Bible asks this question. We've got this verse here saying, hey, there's going to be a war between your offspring and her offspring, serpent. And eventually, one of her offspring is going to, I'm going to keep saying, crush your head. So now the question is, who's that going to be? Who will this offspring of the woman be? Who will defeat the serpent and undo this curse that we're seeing? And from there, this war between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent pops up all throughout your Bibles. Let me give you a few, and I encourage you, go chase down some more. Here's just a handful. So when God's people are enslaved by a powerful foe, it's no coincidence that their ruler in Egypt, Pharaoh, is represented by a giant cobra on his head. Interesting. When Israel gets its first king, King Saul, his first act as king of God's people is to go to war against a man named Nakash. Do you know what Nakash means in Hebrew? Serpent. So the first king of God's people goes to war against the serpent and his people. When David fights Goliath, there's a word used for Goliath's armor. That's a word used, it literally means like snaky. His armor, it's, in your Bibles it'll say bronze, but the word behind it is it's like snaky, scaly. And so what happens to this man covered in snake-like armor? His head is crushed. Then, fast forward, John the Baptist shows up on the scene and confronts the Pharisees. What does he call these opponents? You brood of vipers. When Jesus confronts the unbelieving Jews, he says, you are of your father the devil, contrasting two lines of people. Jesus tells a parable about there being good seeds and weeds in the same field. The good seeds, he says, are sons of the kingdom, and the weeds are sons of the evil one. Two lines. And then all of this kind of comes to a head in Revelation 12, where there you've got a dragon who tries to devour the offspring of the woman who will rule all the nations, it says. But the dragon doesn't succeed because the child is caught up to God in his throne. And then you read this, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. So there's this storyline fills your Bible of the, the offspring of the serpent versus the offspring of the woman who culminates in one particular offspring who's going to do mortal damage to the serpent. So who is this offspring of a woman who would crush the serpent's head? Surprise, it's Jesus. He's the one who came to undo the curse. This is why we read earlier, why Galatians 3 draws attention to the fact that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Why mention that? Why throw in there, born of a woman? Well, because we're looking for one born of a woman. We're looking for an offspring of a woman. And what did he come to do as one born of a woman? To redeem us. Well, how did he redeem us from the curse? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. See, the cross is where this happens. The cross is where the serpent bruises his heel. 
Jesus suffered. He felt pain. He felt the conflict in his body between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. As the seed of the woman, he had his heel bruised. But the cross is also where the offspring of the woman crushed the serpent's head and rescued us from this curse. The curse was undone by Jesus becoming a curse for us. And here's the crazy part. In Christ, we too are taking part in his victory over the serpent. Did you know that? Romans 16, 20 says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Jesus is the snake crusher, but when we're in him, says the God of peace, yeah, he's gonna keep crushing Satan, but it's gonna be under your feet. How does that happen? Revelation 12, if we'd kept reading, says, by the word of their testimony and the blood of the lamb, they have overcome. That's how we crush the serpent. So what's our takeaway here? What we need to see from this cloud of judgment on the serpent is that until Jesus returns, there will always be war between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. We should expect no less. This is why the biblical writers make it clear, like, don't be surprised that the fiery trial is coming upon you. Like, from Genesis, we're told there's going to be war. So do not be surprised and get upset when they're like, look at how they're treating Christians. Yeah, it's in the first pages of your Bible. This is what we're to expect. You know why? Because still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. That one from back there, he's still at it. He's got no new game. He says, I still want to cause woe. And just like we sang, if we in our own strength confide, if we think, okay, we can stop him, Our striving would be losing. But we have the right man on our side. Who is he? Christ Jesus, it is he, and he must win the battle. And because of Jesus, we can be free from the curse. And we can renounce Satan and all his ways. That was a a regular part of old baptism formulas. And one of the things they would ask a a baptismal candidate is, do you now renounce Satan and all his ways? And they say, yes. Why would they do that? Because you're leaving the offspring of the serpent and you're now an offspring of the woman. You're leaving the domain of darkness and you're now in the kingdom of the beloved son. But, hear this. We must all choose sides in the conflict. Nobody's Switzerland, all right? There are two sides and two sides only. We either live and breathe and work and love and desire in the domain of darkness or in the kingdom of the beloved son. We are either an offspring of the serpent or an offspring of the woman. And because of Jesus, we don't have to stay an offspring of the serpent. The only way to get from one to the other is the cross. But which side are you on? Have you turned from sin and the ways of the evil one and said, no, I want Jesus. I trust that he's the only way I get from one to the other. Whose side are you on? Next, after the serpent, we come to the woman. But before we get to what God says to her, we need to point out something here. One of the things that shows up all over the place in these opening chapters of Genesis 
is the massive importance of God's design for gender. The equally valuable yet distinct roles that God has given men and women. We saw it when we looked at creation. We saw it when we looked at temptation and the fall. And now here we see it again in God's judgment against sin. Sometimes people want to argue in the name of equality that equality means sameness, that there is no differentiation between men and women. Well, the question we must ask ourselves is, if there's no difference in men and women, why does God pronounce different judgments on them? Why not a blanket judgment for humanity? Why one specific to men and one specific to women? And why does both the man's and the woman's judgment connect so specifically with the fundamental callings God had given them in creation? Let's look at these a little closer so I can show you what I mean. First, let's look at God's words to the woman in verse 16. Look there. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now to help us understand why the curse impacts men and women the way it does, consider this. When God made man, he was taken out of what? The ground. What job did God give Adam? Work the ground. So where does Adam experience the effects of the curse most profoundly? In relation to the ground. When God made woman, what was she taken out of? Man. What job did God give her? Be a helper to the man. So where does Eve most profoundly experience the effects of the curse? In her relation to the man and their children. These are not arbitrary judgments. This is what we need to see. God's not just willy-nilly saying, okay, because you did that, um, this is going to be your consequence and that's going to be yours. There's a fittingness to the way the curse impacts men and women. Each experiences its effects in a way that corresponds to the fundamental callings God has given them. So for the woman here, that means the first way she'd feel the curse is pain in bringing forth children. Now the most obvious application of that is labor pains. Any woman who's given birth will say, like, yes, that's true. That, that really happened. But the, the way it's described here means most likely more than simply the pains of the delivery of a child. It's broader than that. And it includes both the, probably the physical and emotional pain of the whole experience of starting, growing, and raising a family. This would include labor pains. It would include pregnancy pains. It would include barrenness. It would include the struggles of nurturing and parenting young children. In other words, the woman's going to feel the hurts and aches of bringing new life into the world and seeing new people grow and mature. As she sought to fulfill the calling of Genesis 1.28, which said, be fruitful and multiply, now God says her pain would multiply as well. She still had her God-given role. Catch that. He hasn't taken it from her, saying, never mind, you don't get to do that. She's still going to be the one to bear new life. But now, it would be painful. In the same way, 
she still had her role as helper. He hasn't taken that from her either. But now we see that wouldn't be easy either. Now, when I read it, I used two different words. Depending on when your Bible, which version of the Bible you have, it either says her desire is for her husband, her desire is to her husband, it is contrary to. It's because it's not immediately clear how we should translate that. It's a, it's a generic word that just means it was somehow oriented toward her husband. So it could be something sweet. Like, does it mean just like, oh, she's, she really has a good affection for her husband. It's grammatically possible. But it most likely means something else. Because one of the only other places it shows up is just a chapter later. If you scan your eyes over to Genesis 4, verse 7, you see the same ideas show up. Genesis 4, 7, God tells Cain, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to or for you, but you must rule over it. Same words as back here in chapter 3, saying your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. So when we study our Bibles, we should always use what's more clear to help us understand what's less clear. And in chapter 4, it's clear that it means sin wants to control Cain. It wants to have its way with him. It wants to get him to do what it wants him to do. So in the same way then, verse 16 is saying that the woman, when it says her desire is for her husband, she wants to have her way with him. She will want to control him, to get him to do the things that she wants him to do. In other words, she wants to challenge and usurp his role as the head, which is exactly what happened when they sinned. Eve stepped out of her role as helper and instead acted as a head. So what we see is that the punishment fits the crime. And when she does that, when she steps out of that role and it says tries to take over and take charge, it says her husband will rule over her. Now again, we're not positive. That, could that mean simply that he's going to assert his rightful godly leadership and just say like, no, honey, that's not the way it should be done? Could be. But more likely, the connotation here is that he will rule over her in a domineering, harsh, and oppressive way. So rather than by leading her, by serving and loving her, he will instead distort his role as head by lording it over her. And here, we have the tragic moment when husband and wife shifted from companions to competitors each trying to call the shots, each trying to get their way, but neither living out their role the way God designed. Both have distorted what it means to be a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. And friends, this right here, why this matters is this is why marriage is hard. Like this is why your marriage is hard. This is the source of every marital challenge and conflict. Now, it's not going to look exactly the same in every marriage. You, you might say like, well, I don't necessarily feel like I'm always trying to take my husband's role. Or he might say like, no, I don't feel like I'm harsh with my wife. But in some way, shape, or form, this is the downfall right here. And so every, this is why there is rampant divorce. This is why marriage is such a big deal. So 
the question we're left with, okay, if that's what's happening, and God says that's the consequence, whew, is that just the way it's going to be? Do we just consign ourselves and come to grips with the fact that, okay, this is what marriage is going to look like. Will this conflict always have to be there? Praise God, the answer is no. Because Jesus came to redeem marriage too. And when we are in Christ, we repent of these wrong and sinful tendencies. And by God's grace, we move closer and closer to the original design. Think about how the New Testament talks to Christian husbands and wives. What does it say to wives? 1 Peter 3.1 Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Colossians 3 Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Ephesians 5 Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Okay, what about husbands? Colossians 3 Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. 1 Peter 3.7 Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So why is it that the New Testament is banging this drum about why are wives told to submit to their husbands? Because due to the curse, their desire will be contrary to their husbands. Why are husbands told over and over to love their wives in a way that's self-sacrificing and not harsh? Because due to the curse, husbands will seek to rule over their wives. And in Jesus, right relationship is being restored in marriage. Loving companionship replaces bitter competition. There is instead joy and fulfillment and beauty as husband and wife live out their God-ordained roles. So just a quick word here. If you're having struggles in your marriage, don't feel like you're the only one. The reality is more marriages are struggling than you would ever dare believe. And there's a spectrum of struggling. We know because of Genesis 3 that marriage is hard. If your marriage is not hard, I don't know what you're doing. But marriage is hard because of the way the curse affects us. Because of our own sinful tendencies. So if you're here and your marriage is hard, know that you're not alone. And don't go it alone. Talk to our brothers and sisters. Talk to each other. We should help each other. That's a great way that we as a church can come alongside each other and say, hey, we keep having this same fight. Is there anything that, do you see, am I saying something wrong? Am I doing something? Help me know how to talk to my wife. Help, help me know how to like love my husband differently. Let's, let's be for marriages here. Not just for people getting married, but for marriages. All right, close parentheses. Now let's go to Adam in verse 17 and 19. Look there. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. Now, notice again that Adam's punishment affects his relationship to that from which he was taken. The same way Eve was taken from the man, it affected her relationship to the man. Adam was taken from the ground to work the ground, but now the ground is cursed. In other words, from now on, 
His work will be hard. The ground won't just easily provide an abundance for him like it had in the garden. Yes, he had to work in the garden, but we have every indication that like, it wasn't hard, strenuous. But now he'll have to toil and sweat just to scrape by. The ground that once produced every tree pleasing to the sight and good for food would now also bring forth thorns and thistles. And just like Eve still had her role as childbearer and helper, but now that would be painful, Adam too, we see, still keeps his role as worker and breadwinner, but now providing for his family is going to be painful. That same word pain shows up for both man and woman. And this struggle for survival, it says, would last his whole life. Which brings us to the other part of his curse. That life would eventually end. He would die and return to the ground from which he was taken. Dust to dust. That was not supposed to be the way it was. There was supposed to be this unbroken, unending, joy-filled fellowship. And yet God says, okay, now you're going to go back to that from which you came. Now, for most of us in this room, I don't think we have many farmers in here. So we don't, we don't read about this ground producing things and it feels a little distant. But the reality is we all feel this curse. This curse is the reason that any of our work is hard. It's the reason why computers crash, why machines break down, why sales are slow, why that client won't get back to you, why things don't just work the way they're supposed to. All that, it's right here because the ground is fighting back at us. The world around us is cursed. Romans 8 describes it this way. It says, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Ever feel that? Ever just feel like everything you do and everything around you, like, this is futile. It's not working. It's busted and broken. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Oh, I love that picture. It's because it, it puts words to what we sense out in the world. That just like everything about the world, like there's a groaning. It's just a, oh. Like you don't even know what words to say. It's just you feel it, that something is not right. Creation itself, it says, is, is groaning. It says, why don't I work? Why can't I be all that God made me to be? Well, the good news, it says, when Jesus comes back and makes all things new, we will finally, for the first time, see a world that is filled with blessing and free from curse. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that if, if this world that we know and live in, if this world that groans under the curse now can still be so beautiful, still take our breath away, still amaze us, what will a creation set free from its bondage to corruption be like? We love the broken version. What if we actually see the, the fixed, healed, restored, renewed one? But even better than that, what will life be like that's free from the threat and presence of death? 
Because it says Jesus redeems us from the curse of death. So that now death no longer gets the last word. Yes, we still die. Every funeral you go to is a reminder of the curse that our sin has brought. I hope that goes through your mind. Every time you set foot in a funeral home and you see a casket, curse. This is curse. We still die, but Jesus came to die the death our sins deserve, the ultimate full weight of God's wrath kind of death, and rise again so that he could break the power of death. So that now he can say, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death in Hades. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet will he live. This is why we love to sing, death was once my great opponent, fear once had a hold on me, but the son who died to save us rose that we would be free indeed. Friends, this is what Jesus has done. Like, I hope you see how this stuff, this is shaping everything you experience. Like, this is life, death, work, family, marriage, all of it packed in here. And Jesus is fixing all of it. And do you see how at the cross, all these elements of the curse come together? It's, this is amazing. At the cross, we've got Jesus, the offspring of the woman who crushed the head of the serpent. He labors strenuously in prayer in the garden so hard that he sweats drops of blood. He then wore the curse on his head in the form of a crown of thorns as he went to the tree to undo what happened at the first tree. He died and was buried in the dust, but then rose victorious as the curse breaker. Friends, this is our Jesus. He is the one who will make all things right and save us from all that our sin has caused and deserves. Oh, this is good news. So those are our three storm clouds of judgment. Now, obviously, especially there at the end, there was great hope mingled in there. But I want you to now, let's look more closely at two glimpses of hope in verses 20 and 21. First, verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now, we can just read right past this and be like, why is that hopeful? It's hopeful because it means they weren't going to die yet. It wasn't all over for them. If she's going to be the mother of all living, well, that means she's going to live long enough to have children. They would see life and offspring. God had told them, you will surely die, but he's graciously postponed it. And Adam's words here show us that he, he believes God's promise. When he just heard a few verses earlier, God say there's going to be conflict between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the servant. One commentator basically said that like, it's almost as though you can picture Adam when he hears that, saying there's going to be conflict, Eve, or serpent, between your offspring and the woman's offspring. And Adam's got his head down, and all of a sudden he hears, offspring? Did he say offspring? We don't, we don't have offspring. If he says there's going to be offspring, that means, that means we're not going to die yet. We're going to have children. And this is Adam showing his faith in that word of God saying, I'm going to call your name Eve, which the word in Hebrew means living or life-giving one, because 
God just told us we're going to have kids. I believe what God just told us. So the first glimpse of hope is ongoing life and offspring. The second is in verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Now remember, they had been originally naked and unashamed. Then they sinned and their eyes were opened to see their guilt and shame. So they try to cover it up. They try to make their own garments of fig leaves. But look at God's mercy here. He sees how insufficient their best efforts to cover their sin were. And what does he do? He doesn't say, seriously? I can still see everything. Like, that's, that's not a covering. He doesn't scold them, doesn't abandon them, say, not only did you sin, you tried to cover it up, and look where that got you. No, he looks at their feeble, weak efforts and says, no, no, no. I'm going to make you a better covering for your shame. One not made by them, but by him. And what does it require for God to provide this covering? It required death. An animal had to be sacrificed for God to cover his people's shame. The covering that belonged to the animal, this animal's skin, had to be given to cover his people instead. And here we get just the faintest whisper of the sacrifices to come leading most ultimately to Jesus' sacrifice. There, in Jesus' sacrifice, he did what all our best efforts couldn't do. He gave us his own righteousness to cover our shame and guilt. After we try and try to do our own righteousness and say, I got these fig leaves, God. God doesn't just abandon us and say, really, that's, that's your effort? Instead, he says, I've got a better covering for you. One that will last. One that will fully and forever cover your sin and your shame and your guilt. Not only that, the words here that talks about their garment and being clothed, these words are most often used to describe the garments that priests wore. If you remember back in chapter 2, we spent a long time talking about how God made man and woman to be priests in the garden temple. Here we see God restoring their roles by providing their new priestly garments. Just as one day in the new earth, as God's kingdom of priests, we will wear our white robes washed in the blood of the Lamb. I hope you're seeing what mercy of God. But now, we come to one last storm cloud. And it's the supercell. Supercell, if you don't know the storm, it's like this, this nasty, big old storm. This is the worst of the bunch. Look at verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So as we've looked at this passage, we've seen lots of horrible consequences because of our sin. Its effect on marriages, childbirth, jobs, everything. But here is the worst thing that happened at the fall. We lost access to God's presence. Adam and Eve are expelled from the garden. Now notice that 
it says Adam still has his role to work the ground. Did you catch that? He's, he still has that. Remember his original role was to work and keep. While he still has to work it, instead of keeping the garden, now he is kept from the garden by angels with a flaming sword. And now their access to the tree of life was cut off. This is the low point. This is what we lost. But notice that even in this darkest of judgments, there's a glimpse of hope. Why does it say God sent them out of the garden? Not just as punishment, it was. But also because God doesn't want to leave sinners in their doomed condition. He saw what had become of his image bearers. He saw where they had fallen from. And he says, now lest he reach out his hand and take and eat from the tree of life and live forever. God says, I can't leave him like this. He can't let them stay and go on forever in their sinful state, eternally suffering under this curse. So he drives them out of the garden. So was him expelling them from the garden judgment? Absolutely. But was it mercy? Yeah. And so, our scene closes. Adam and Eve walk out of the garden into the cursed world with all its pain and struggles. But they did so with the covering God provided for their sin and shame and the promise of the woman's offspring who would crush the serpent, defeat evil, and undo the curse once and for all. And guess what? So do we. As we face this week in a world clouded over with curse, don't forget the bright rays of hope that pierce through and remind us that above all these clouds and after all this storm, there's an unclouded day where the Son of God shines his blessing over all his redeemed people in a creation set free from the curse forever. And until that day, we walk through this sin-cursed world with a covering for our sin and shame and the promise of one who would crush the serpent, defeat evil, and undo the curse forever. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you've sent your son, born of a woman, to redeem us from the curse. Thank you that all that you promised so long ago in these opening chapters of Genesis, where we've seen you be faithful to your promise. Thank you that now we have a true and better Adam who didn't cave into temptation, but was faithful in what you called him to do. And just as Adam's sin brought death, the second Adam has brought life. So that death, though it was once our great opponent, it is no longer. Because now we know the one who holds the keys of death and lives forevermore. God, I pray that as we venture through this cursed world, that we would be we would have eyes to see things for what they are, that we would see the big picture and that we would realize when we see certain things that are broken or not right, we would say, that's curse. That's sin. But it won't always be this way. Lord, give us 
Bible eyes to see the world. Eyes that are conditioned by the truth of your word and not just by the sharing of experiences or what our friends say. And help us to put our hope firmly in the one who came to undo this curse. Help us not believe the lie that this is it, that this is all life has to give, and then there's nothing more. Help us to hold on to hope that one day we will be with you in a world where it says nothing accursed will ever enter it. God, we can't fathom that, but we long for that. So would you use that reality to to bolster our hope this week? Even as people may have particularly dark clouds hovering over their lives, would you cause rays of hope to burst through even this morning? We ask you to do this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.